You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a very honored guest, Dr. Alan Valentine. So Dr. Valentine is professor and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Considered a global leader in this space, Dr. Valentine has done some groundbreaking work in behavioral sciences, including being the co-investigator of a NCI-funded study on depression screening and treatment in ovarian cancer patients on active treatment. So grab your coffee and or your favorite beverage. I have mine. And let's connect over coffee for the next 45 minutes to an hour with um, Dr. Valentine on all things related to maintaining and restoring mental health while overcoming ovarian cancer. And if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we'll try to get it addressed post the discussion. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Valentine, to this episode of uh, Connect Over Coffee. Always an honor to have you with us. Well, great, great pleasure to be here. And I, I appreciate the invitation to join you and and everyone who's on on uh, in on the session. So Thank you, Dr. Valentine. So I have several questions, as I always do. But before we get started, I just wanted to know, uh, you know, we hear this term psycho-oncology, right, uh, mm -hmm. often. So tell us what this means and what should we know about it? Psycho-oncology, uh, which is in a lot of settings is known otherwise as psychosocial oncology or behavioral oncology, is... Uh, basically the study and clinical care of patients dealing with the behavioral aspects of cancer, uh, the emotional aspects and consequences, and also the neuropsychiatry. And the, the field has expanded, well, you know, for quite some time uh, to include caregivers. Yeah. And there are within psycho-oncology and affiliated specialties that work especially with survivors. So um, most of the folks that practice in this field are, there's a whole, it's open to a lot of people, but it would be psychologists, social workers, and, and some psychiatrists as well. Okay, thank you. So um, I read in a study that uh, women who experienced six or more symptoms of PTSD at some point in life had a twofold greater risk of developing ovarian cancer compared with women who never had any PTSD symptoms. Can you tell us about how depression and PTSD elevates the, elevate the risk of ovarian cancer and what should our overcomers know about this? It's an interesting question. Uh, there's not a whole lot of clarity on the data, but what is known or what is hypothesized with pretty good confidence is a lot of this has to do with the effects of stress hormones, mm -hmm. uh, cortisol, 
uh, neurotransmitters, including norepinephrine. And, uh, you know, these stress hormones are, we, we all have them in our bodies all the time. And in certain settings, we actually need them because they're beneficial for things that we need to do. But as they say, moderation in all things. Uh, there is considerable data in the lab, a good part of a good amount of it coming from MD Anderson and Dr. Anil Sood, uh, looking at stress hormones and the activity of the pro or progression of ovarian cancer cells in vitro. So, you know, the study that you are referring to, there, there were several, but the large study looked at a, a large number of women, the, uh, forget the exact name of a nursing study, but it was over a series of years. And the idea is that this exposure is in some ways, uh, what would be the word? Uh, toxic. Well, it's definitely, it, it's definitely toxic. It's, you know, like, uh, I don't want to overstate it, but like emotional nicotine and the, the effects. Um, so, and that would apply to depression as well. I, you know, I, I don't think it's terribly surprising uh, because there's quite outside of cancer, there's a lot of speculation about the effects with depression of uh, inflammation and also stress hormones. So these things, uh, they, they serve a purpose, but they can also be definitely, uh, they can have effect on, on disease. Uh, not just cancer. This study was done in ovarian cancer, but we're also talking about effects on the heart, for instance, uh, which can be equally dangerous. But it's all—it's it, basically hormones and, and neurotransmitters. So, you know, where do we go from there? Um, this doesn't mean that everybody who gets PTSD is going to um, develop any type of cancer, uh, but if there's a vulnerability, uh, these are things that we would like to try to manage if we if we could. Maybe and that's yeah, and then alternatively, also, I was just thinking that every woman or every person who develops ovarian cancer may not necessarily have PTSD, right? So oh, oh, of course, you it's, you know it's an excellent point and. Uh, it's that, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, so, and, and similarly for depression, I mean, by by no means is the majority of patients who get depression or PTSD going to have cancer in the future. That's just absolutely not true. Right. But we have different ways of being vulnerable, though. Right. So so so. Just so I understand this, what you said is, you know, this uh, this stress, um, the depression or the anxiety or PTSD may lead to inflammation um, in the body, which then leads to things, chronic illnesses such as cancer. And it can be bidirectional. There's the, definitely the question about whether inflammation and surges of stress hormones then have emotional effects. Okay. So it, 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 you know, it can definitely be bi-directional, but there's, there's also, you know, a, a behavioral component to this because surges in stress hormones or stru surges in, in like cortisol, 
or mm -hmm. surges in neurotransmitters like nortriptyl, uh, like uh, norepinephrine, I should uh, I should say, they don't they don't affect everybody in the same way. Yeah. Uh, so not everyone who has a cortisol surge or a norepinephrine surge becomes subjectively anxious or depressed. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of PTSD, a lot of this has to do with the severity of the stressor and the chronicity of the stressor. Of course. But we but we all cope in different ways. So. Um, you know, that has to be factored in as well, because you could have two different people with the same levels of these hormones, and one has an emotional reaction and the other one, or emotional reaction and the other one doesn't. Right, right. That makes so, sense. Yep. You know, which is also to say that we don't, the, the concern that we would need to be like really self-monitoring our, our cortisol levels or, or all these other uh, chemical levels, we, we probably don't need to do that. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So you have done some significant work on depression screening and treatment in ovarian cancer patients and active treatment. This was the NCI funded study that I was reading through. So tell us more about this and what should our overcomers know about, you know, remaining vigilant um, and also reporting depressive symptoms to their care teams. Screening for emotional distress is now considered standard of care in, in cancer care, not just in ovarian cancer, but ovarian cancer is what is what we're talking about. Rates of depression we know are higher in cancer uh, patients generally compared to others. And we would say that about other diseases as well. But it, it's, it's part of, of care that should it's, it's just part of care. Uh, without this, I don't think we should be referring to comprehensive cancer care. And this is this gets into the the this is down to the level of accreditation. Folks take this really seriously and, and, and they should. And that's part of the great progress in the field. So I, I think a lot of folks who are on participating in this program will have gone into offices and they will be asked about distress levels. Uh, and that's a good opening then to getting into more specific things like we did on 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 uh, uh, Dr. Shin's study that I that I was part of. So it, it's just a sort of monitoring type of thing. Uh, nothing to be alarmed about, but we would, you know we 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 can't treat a problem if we don't if we're not aware of it. Uh, and this is this is one way just to start a conversation. And we, like anything in medicine, we would like to help early if we can. And if, it's, um, and if it's later serious, we absolutely need to. So I, for me, it's an expectation of care in, in, in ovarian cancer. And I'm 100% with you on that. And I, you know, applaud you for saying this because, you know, to me, overall health is 50% mental health and 50% physical health. I mean, without one, the other is not, it's, I mean, cannot be existing in its, uh, you know, in, in its best form. So, but you also said it should be standard of care, but is it actually standard of care in all institutions across the country or even the world? I don't think so, right? And so- Well, it's, 
it's I'm sorry to interrupt, certainly not all over the world. Yeah. And that's that's not necessarily anybody's fault. One there's there's just knowledge about this. Um uh, and attitudes, the added uh and also resources. Yeah. This is um I mean, here at MD Anderson, we have this wealth of resources um, that smaller cancer centers, through no fault of their own, just may not have. So, uh, you know, this is why I, I do a couple of lectures for psychiatry departments about cancer survivors, about the fact that my colleagues who don't work in a cancer center are going to see cancer survivors. They just are. So um, it's, it, it can be a little harder for, for smaller centers. Um, but the, the idea that the Institute of Medicine has been on, you know, been on point about this now for years, that this is, this is part of comprehensive care. And we are happy to hear that. So, you know, you, you talked about the mental health screening, right? So what are some of the sample questions that you ask your patients to try to figure out if they need more help? How is this, what is the process and how is it actually done? Well, here uh, it is, we, we use a number of instruments um, and I mean, there's nothing that beats a conversation, okay? Ask, if, if nothing else, have the conversation, but it is helpful to use validated rating scales uh, just to try to get a baseline assessment. With that said, I, as a clinician, I would never make a diagnosis because somebody scores a six on a scale. Um, that six tells me that I should ask some other questions. Uh, and the questions we, you know, we will typically ask about anxiety or depression and or depression. Uh, in some settings, I, I you know, I'll, I'll get to a, del a delicate subject, but if we have concerns, we will definitely ask questions about suicide or about or about concerns about that. So the, the screening is is just that. Uh, it's not making a diagnosis, but it's giving us and maybe giving a patient you know, some indication that here's something that we might want to look into and we can uh, follow up with patients. And this is often done, you know, thank you for having filled out our scales. And we noticed a couple of scores here that might indicate something uh, where some assistance would help be helpful. Would you be interested in talking to someone? Yeah. Uh, and this distress can go in all sorts of directions. You know, we have uh, some of the rating scales have problem lists associated with them because we can have distress because we're depressed, uh, but we can also have distress because we're in pain or because we are dealing with the financial burden of this disease or existential or spiritual or religious distress. I mean, there, there's a whole, a whole lot of things that can come up with that same emotional discomfort. So these screens also, if folks, if places have the resources, help us to get our patients to the right specialists. Right. 
Thank you. So, um, you know, in current medicine practices, we, we stay primarily focused on the clinical treatment, which is great, which we need to do. However, as you also mentioned, research also indicates that a vast majority of these patients feel somewhat uncomfortable raising this um, psychological or emotional concerns during their visits and consults with the doctors. And so how do you think we should address this gap to ensure that we are doing a better job of addressing overall health? Well, I'm biased, but I would say we have we should address it straight on. Yeah. Um, part of the, a, a big part of the major problem with behavioral health care is stigma. Yes. Okay. And that's definitely an issue in oncology. I will say, and I've been doing this a long time, things are better than they were when I started. Mm -hmm. I, I think that things are better in the United States across the board because folks are more open about these, these mm -hmm. problems. But there's still a lot of stigma. There's still a lot of shame. Um, and I... I, I think the, you know, the way to deal with this is to, is to take it, be head on about it. I will, you, you are right. There are some clinicians that are really uncomfortable with, with, with discussing these sort of things. And, uh, but I still think that one, they should be asking or members of their staff, as we talked about comprehensive, uh, most folks will be getting these questions, but, uh, not saying anything perpetuates the stigma. Yeah. It just keeps it going. And then the person who's hurting doesn't get any help right. or, or the caregiver or the survivor. So, um, and if one person won't listen, then we should toggle to, to somebody else who will. Yeah, and just seeing the you know whole spectrum of uh, overcomers and the, the work with that we do, I also feel that somewhat um, some of it is also cultural differences to how you, you know, really? how you react to situations and circumstances is also deeply ingrained in you in how you are we are all raised and, and our backgrounds and our beliefs right so absolutely and i i mean i mean no disrespect to uh to those cultures and, and those beliefs um with that said there's still the question i i you know again i'm biased i'm a, I'm a cancer psychiatrist i don't think that patients of any culture or belief or or background should just feel that they have to just sit there and suffer. Exactly, hundred percent with you on that. Thank you for saying that. So, um, you know, in your practice and experience, what what are some of the uh, key mental health issues you help address in ovarian cancer, or for that matter, any cancer survivor? The number one thing that I think I see in the and the literature supports this is fear of recurrence. Yes, that I I I was just re, I was reviewing studies today in preparation for our conversation, and consistently fear of recurrence is number one because of the nature of ovarian cancer. So um, that presents a you know a really interesting challenge. 
but there are ways to uh, to deal with it. Um, ovarian cancer patients of different ages at different at different points in the developmental runway, if you will, have different concerns. Younger patients may have concerns about fertility and whether they're going to be able to have children. Uh, older patients may have more legacy concerns. So, but hanging in the background a lot of times is, okay, this fear of recurrence, uh, what if? And so, and I, I say, you know, I, ha I have never had cancer. Uh, so I am talking without the experience, but the question gets to be how, how can we have a potentially serious illness potentially, or the, the possibility of it coming back and have a life at the same time? So, so that we manage the fear and the fear doesn't manage us. That to me is the challenge. It's okay to have the fear, right? That's realistic. But we we don't want it if we can if possible to be dominating our lives. So, um, you know, there are different ways to, to go about trying to help with that. Sometimes it's harder than than at other times. What what would be your guidance? Because I know that you that what you said is hundred percent true. Because this is the number one thing we all hear. I mean, hear from our overcomers that this fear of cancer coming back is the number one concern that everyone has. So, with your experience and knowledge, uh, what what would be your guidance to our overcomers on how to somewhat manage this fear of recurrence? Easier said than done, but we need to contain this fear. Okay. Uh, it's like I said, I, I don't mind acknowledging it. I, I think being in denial of this fear is, is ridiculous. This is really scary stuff. But um, I used to say that being affected like this, like this is like a tax on quality of life because our patients can be doing very well in the present. And this fear, it can be emotional like the disease is already back. And in fact, it may not come back at all. Okay. Easier said than done when one when, when has gone, gone through this. But it's, I, it's like it can it, either alone or working with a therapist or in a group, but there's a lot of different ways to do this to say, you know, I acknowledge the fear and I'm going to give it some attention today, but I am not going to have it take my whole day away from me. I got other stuff to do that's not cancer. Yeah. Okay. And I, you know, I'll honor the fear. I'll say, I'll come back to it tomorrow because it's real, but I'm not, I am not going to give it my entire day. So, you know, that sometimes is, it can be helpful. It takes some practice. It's, it doesn't always work, but I, I like the idea of acknowledging that this fear is legitimate. We're not saying that anybody shouldn't be afraid. There's reason to be afraid, but we want to be in control. Um, so that's where we where we try. That's where we try to get to. Speaking of control, I was just thinking, and and this is based on a conversation I had with one of the overcomers. Is also, you know, what if you thought that yes, that you actually embrace the fact that the cancer 
is going to come back. And it, when we are talking about control, then how do you then control when the ca cancer comes back? What do you do to, you know, improve your mental health given that the cancer is just basically scenario planning in the sense that you're already imagining that the cancer has come back. Just does that seem to help with the fear of recurrence, just kind of manage it or does it not, you think? I, I think it depends on the individual. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want this to be a particularly depressing conversation to no pun intended, but I mean, if that acknowledgement takes away a feeling of uncertainty, yeah. fine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and it may prove to be true. Hopefully it won't. Mm -hmm. But then, okay, what do you do in the meantime? Yeah. Uh, it's like, because I, I do, I, I'm not aware of an ability to control if if a, if cancer is going to return, if ovarian cancer is going to return, I'm not aware of a, of our ability as individuals to control when that happens. Yes, you know we're so far that nobody no one's pulled that off. Yeah. But but how do you how do you live with it? In in my opinion, the goal is. How do you live with a potentially recurring or potentially life-threatening disease and have a life at the same time? Right. So we're we're asking we're asking our patients and maybe ourselves in the future to like multitask. Yeah. Right. So because there's a lot of living to do. Yes. Uh, and if cancer and if the cancer comes back, we don't know how it's going to come back. Uh, we don't know what new treatment modalities are going to be available at that time. So, um, but if, if, if the idea is like, okay, the cancer is going to come back, then the thought is with that, knowing that, how do I want to live my life? Yeah. What do I want my life to be? So, and, and that's up to the, to each of us as individuals. That's so, true. Yeah. So Dr. Valentin, I was just thinking while you were talking that, you know, by the time a patient comes to you, I mean, they they are already kind of in sort of emotional distress. Otherwise they wouldn't see you, right? So when they come to you, um, how do you typically address uh, these issues with the patients? Is it through medication? Is it through other things um, that you, you know, offer in terms of guidance, you know, walk us through this a little bit in terms of your treatment patterns. So it depends on, first of all, what symptoms are, are patients having yeah. uh, so that we can try to, we can try to make a, a diagnosis and, and the, the diagnoses in psychiatry and in psychology are clinical. There is no lab assay where I can say, aha, there's a chemical imbalance, it's depression. None of that exists. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we try to make a diagnosis. We also try to see what's driving the diagnosis because some diagnoses are more responsive to medications. Some are more responsive to psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. uh, 
so it's it's very it's very individualized um, for major depression. The combination of psychotherapy and medication works better than either by themselves. Not not unlike a lot of cancer therapies where we see multiple agents being used. So it's a, it's a very individualized, uh, or it should be a very individualized approach. That's why I said I wouldn't make a diagnosis off of a rating scale score. Um, and you know we try to employ the modality or the modalities plural that would be most most helpful to the patient. And sometimes it's a tr some trial and error. You know we don't we don't always there's not necessarily that aha moment. This is this is what's needed. I mean sometimes I've got a pretty good hunch of what I think would help, but until we try it, we're, we're not sure. So, you know, um, psychotherapy, medications, the combination sort of depending. Um, there, there's all sorts of different ways to go about these things depending on what's going on with the patient. The other thing that we hear from um, a lot of our overcomers is the brain fog, right? Uh, when they're going through so many um, treatments, uh, chemo, surgery, etc. The brain fog is something that is very hard to live with that. And in certain cases, as you said, and everyone is not on the same scale. So for some people, it's more than the others. So do you see a lot of our overcomers with that, um, those symptoms? And in, if you do, then what kind of guidance do you give for managing brain fog or chemo-induced brain we, we we do see it. Uh, I don't think we see all of it. Our 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 colleagues in neuro neurology, uh, some patients will get to them that don't get to us. I mean, there's different approaches, different different ways to to come to this, and several of the specialties sort of overlap. So uh, there the tendency has been to sort of go away from medications for management of chemo brain or chemo fog, not exclusively. Uh, there's a lot more emphasis as there is pretty much across the board on behavioral strategies, uh, exercise, maybe cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, there are certain settings where on an individual basis, cert certain medications, psychostimulant medications, uh, Ritalin and it, or methylphenidate and its colleagues on an individual basis may be efficacious. Uh, in, in, the, in some settings, it's, it's sort of like buying some time, managing how we're gonna use behavior, behavioral strategies with the anticipation that we get off the treatment and the brain fog is going to eventually clear, we're just not sure when. Mm -hmm. So what behavioral strategies can we use to buy some time waiting for the clearance to come? Mm -hmm. okay. And I think the nice thing about behavioral strategies is they're not toxic. Yes, exactly. You know, they don't have their own side effects, but yeah. Yeah. in certain settings, uh, we would medicate. Okay. Um, you mentioned uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So I'm just going to go back to that for a second. Um, help us understand what this is uh, so that, you know, everyone learns a little more about this type of therapy. It's a relatively common 
psychotherapy, as you said, a lot of a lot of people have heard about it. Uh, it requires some training, yeah. but in in many settings with anxiety, with depression, with just coping with chronic problems, we can make assumptions in our minds that are not necessarily true about what's going on. And cognitive behavioral therapy in part is designed to help us examine. It's like sometimes even challenge. It's like, is, is, what is the evidence that what I'm thinking about this is, is actually true? Uh, the, the chemo brain is really shutting me down and it's a problem, but I am still managing my checkbook. I am still, I am still pretty functional. So I, I'm not totally disabled by this. Yeah. And also like, am I doing the things that I, other things that I could be doing to help with, with a given problem? So, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, I would sort of say it's like having some discussions uh, and, and sort of challenging in a, in a good way and like, well, wait a second, is there another possible way of looking at this? Or is there another possible explanation for what I'm seeing and what I'm, I, I'm feeling? So, uh, you know, it's pretty common when we're distressed to sort of go to a default position that might or might not be accurate. Yeah. So conversations with your own brain, I love it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, we, it's something that can be taught. Yes. 100%. I love that. So, you know, I was looking at this uh, research study that was published by ASER that found that uh, women diagnosed with ovarian cancer are more than three times more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety, depression, and adjustment disorder. And it then it goes on to say that the overcomers who receive a mental health diagnosis are 1.8 times more uh, at risk of worsening health outcomes versus those who did not receive such a diagnosis. So tell us a little more about this and how can we provide that increased comprehensive support as you talked about to improve the mental health of our families? Well, the access to the, the access to the support is perhaps not necessarily something that the overcomers can do with the exception of the fact that overcomers are consumers, right? And this is in some place a market and, and it should be a, a consumer driven market. And so if, if services are not available, I would say that consumers should ask for their healthcare providers to be either providing it themselves or making, or making referrals. Yeah. Okay, so squeaky wheel. You know, be be a be a self advocate, and and I'm not saying this is bad because a lot of institutions are really trying hard to meet you know the, those qualifications to provide comprehensive care, but uh, that's something that individuals can advocate for uh, with regard to the association between the depression or anxiety and the cancer. This is why we definitely want to treat because these disorders definitely can interfere with self-care, okay? and uh, and they can interfere with self-care in, a, in in ways that we don't think about. Patients can 
they just don't feel like doing it or they're scared. And so they don't take care of themselves as well. They may become less compliant with medications. They may decide to skip checkups, okay? None of that is helpful with regard to keeping the cancer under control. Uh, you know, we, we see other things. Uh, I have patients who have more than one disease and my concern is not so much how they're doing with regard to showing up for their chemotherapy. It's what are they doing at home to make sure that their blood sugars are still under control? Okay. Because they've got diabetes and they're not paying attention to that either. So this is where, this is where these disorders have the potential to not for everybody. I, I'm really not trying to scare any, everybody, anyone at all. But if these things become serious and don't get the attention they need, this is where they can do some damage to, to the health problems that we're trying to treat. Yes, and that is the reason why we need to talk about these things. Because when I was looking at this study, I was like, you know, this is significant what we see here. And we need to talk more about how mental health impacts the overall health. And this is physiological. It's not even just emotional and mental. It just literally is telling us that if you are uh, in mental health, uh, you know, if you are anxious or you, if you're depressed, it has implications to your physical health. So it, it can. Yeah. It can. It, I, I, it doesn't mean that everyone who has significant anxiety or depression is going to have an outburst, adverse outcome. I mean, it's part of my job to help if cancer patients that I see have got depression to help them get through this so we can have a good outcome. It's not, it's not an automatic curse. It's, yeah. something, it's something to be aware of, though. You bring up such a good point also on that because it's important to realize that just because you're depressed or anxious doesn't mean that your you know, outcome is going to be... Absolutely not. It's a hot button issue for me because of the, you know, the, and it's a, what I'm about to say is controversial, controversial but the, the doctor who trained me, Dr. Jimmy Holland, talked about the ironic tyranny of positive thinking um, yes. And this this idea, and it just made her furious. It's like she said, cancer patients have got enough on their plate without the burden of feeling that for themselves or for others around them, that they've got to be happy all the time. Uh, it's, it's not a requirement for successful cancer care. And it's also not realistic. And it's not honest. So... It's something to pay attention to. This is why we have a medical, we have medical and psychological specialties. But it's just as you say, patients with depression and anxiety have good outcomes too. There may be a, they may have to go about it a little harder or a little differently, but it's not a, it's not an either or. And you know, this is part of we've got some work to do about to sort of make sure to help people to under, understand that. But the, um, these are not things, in my opinion, to necessarily be feared. They're to be treated and managed like the ovarian cancers to be treated and managed.
And Dr. Valentine, this thank you so very much for this hopeful message because, you know, I mean, as you said, uh, our overcomers are going through a lot as it is to begin with. And so, and all of us are not built the same way and we react to situations or circumstances differently. You know, no one wants to be depressed, right? No one Absolutely. is into depression. It just happens. So, but if you put that on top of, you know, a patient that if you are depressed, your outcomes are going to be worse, then you are just burdening that person and their families even more, right? So association is not causality. Right. Okay. Um, it, you know, it, it just isn't. And there's, and the data can be interpreted this way. I'm glad that's what we're talking about. It's like, if this, then that, and that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily true. And there are also, you know, effective interventions. That's, that's, that's part of what we're we're part of what we're talking about. Thank you so much for breaking it down for us. And the other thing you talked about is the positive toxicity, right? That everything is going to be okay. It's going to be you got this. You know, it's 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 okay to be not okay, and we should embrace that. Well, it's a. I think you you. I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, Dr. Holland said, I mean, if one can maintain a positive attitude, that's great. No yeah. no problem, but. For many of us, it's not realistic. Exactly, it is a burden, yeah. uh, and it it just causes us to feel bad about ourselves, and then scared that we're sabotaging our own care and our outcomes because of these legitimate emotions that we're feeling. Exactly. So, I'm all for you know I'm all for us giving permission to ourselves or to our family members, our loved ones, you know, to go ahead and have these feelings. The next step is like, okay, now what Now what do I want to do about it? Yeah. Thank you for, for filtering it down for us. This was amazing. And so, um, you know, I was also, and you already touched upon this a little bit about Dr. Sood's work, but, um, you know, tell us a little bit about the strong evidence that links cancer risk with high rates of stress and I mean, is it chronic stress? Is it just usual? What, what is it? How do we define what kind of stress actually impact? What is the linkage? Well, that's where it's it's not. It, that's why millions of dollars of research are going into this. Uh, the study that we mentioned earlier, the PTSD study, sort of rather indicated chronicity and severity were mathematically or statistically tied to these to these risks. Uh, chronic high levels of inflammation, chronic high levels of stress hormones arguably have a lot of negative uh, health consequences. Um, whether a single event, a single surge of cortisol or of dopamine or norepinephrine is enough to trigger uh, a particular disease, including ovarian cancer. We don't know that. Um, my personal clinical thought would be no. Yeah. Uh, but stress is ubiquitous in life, as you said. Stress is 
a ubiquitous part of the cancer experience. But as you said, different people handle that stress differently. Right. So, you know, I think some of the interesting thing that things to be seen with regard to Dr. Sood and his colleagues with their work in the future is like, are individuals different? They've got the, the same high, well, when they've got the same high stress hormones, but, but a person, one group has emotional symptoms, the other ones, the others don't, despite the fact that they've got the same high hormone levels or chemical levels. So how does that impact then what happens downstream? Uh, but, uh, you know, as we've also said, and I know this is, as it should be an ovarian cancer discussion, but there are other aspects of health, right? Uh, chronic, chronic heavy duty stress is not good for heart disease. It, and it's arguably not good for diabetes. So, you know, we've got these, we have these things that are circulating. Um, so um, they can have a lot of different effects. But again, part of it is like, how, how does that manifest in us as individuals? How, and if it does come up, what do we, how do we manage it? Right, right. So Dr. Valentine, if you had to, let's say if you had to um, design this mental health management system and integrate it with the overall care for the cancer patient, uh, how would you design the, the so that uh, mental health management becomes a part of the overall care for the uh, overcomer from the start to the finish? And what barriers do you see now currently in the healthcare system that we need to overcome to get there? There are a number of different models. Uh, we have one model at MD Anderson, uh, others that are distinctly different. One model uh, involves actually, I think the word is embedding, putting putting behavioral specialists into the into the gynecologic oncology clinic, into the breast oncology clinic. Uh, this is a model that has been shown effective in community healthcare. Mm. Uh, we do some things somewhat differently here with like specialized clinics, but this is largely a resource issue. So. You know, that's one way to do it. Uh, another is just to have access to, to uh, uh, consultants. And you know, that is sometimes easier said than done uh, with regard, especially to physician, physician psychiatrists in a lot of places, they, they're not a whole lot of us. Certainly there are great swaths of the state of Texas where there's no psychiatrist to be seen or found. Uh, another issue is reimbursement uh, for care. Uh, there are some insurance problems uh, that interfere with access to care. So, uh, you know, I, I think that those are largely um, the major issues. Um, the pandemic has not helped. Um, the just for general psychiatry and psychology care in a lot of places, we already had fairly long wait times, which have as much as doubled. Uh, uh, we fortunately 
don't have to deal with that so much at MD Anderson, uh, except in some ways, because some of our patients have legitimate behavioral issues, but they're not cancer issues and we're not specialists in those. And we too, we have difficulty getting sometimes our, our patients to the particular specialists that they need. So, um, you know, um, I think those are, are largely things that are that are barriers. Um, this is why the, the work of advocacy organizations, including this one, have have been have been so helpful. You know, uh, you're not heard if you don't make a noise. Exactly, exactly. I say that all the time. <laughs> we are on the same page on that. So in terms of, you know, uh, your advice and your guidance to our overcomers in, I know it's it's not an easy prescription. And as you said, we all are different, but just, just your basic guidance in overcoming depression and mental stress um, during ovarian, ovarian cancer, what would you, what would be your key um, guiding guidance to everyone is different as we said i guess we're just saying that over and over again yeah but um the first thing is acknowledgement okay self self-awareness okay i got this going on okay i'm I, I i'm and it's really it's actually bothering me and it's bothering me enough i probably shouldn't ignore it okay yeah. it's as it's as legitimate as what's going on with the biology of my ovarian cancer. Okay? So, and it deserves the same attention if I can get it. And there's a lot of care. It doesn't, there's a lot of people that can help. So, you know, that is the first thing. Uh, I'm not so good at it myself, but I prescribe exercise for all of my depressed patients and some of my yeah, anxious patients because the exercise helps them a lot of different ways. You know, it, it's good for draining off anxiety. It probably promotes more healthy neurotransmitters, yeah. right? Uh, the better physical shape we're in, the better we're going to withstand whatever side effects the ovarian cancer treatment's going to be. So those are things. Uh, you know, part of the cognitive behavioral approach is to remember, and every member of your organization has this as resiliency, or they wouldn't be overcomers, right? That's by definition. Uh, folks have got skills. Most of us in life have been through one or more challenges, and they're not a cancer experience, but they were something. And we had to, we had some skills. Maybe we weren't even conscious of them, but exactly. we have we have a track record of having overcome other things. Well, that can be transferable. But you know, sometimes in the face of this stress and this fear that you know we we forget that we've you know we have a skill set that that we can activate or that we can modify. So um you know, I, I recommend that, and it, it, these are things that can be taught because it doesn't come to us automatically, especially when we're hurting. Uh, but these are things that we can, we can, these are tools that we can, that we can start to use. They're just, when we're, when we're hurting like this, they're just sort of out of reach. Right. So, you know, uh, 
And that's part of what we try to do is just like help you get back, get it back to where you can get to it. Yeah. So and learn some new ones because sometimes people use unhealthy coping mechanisms like for instance, excessive alcohol, probably not so great in this situation. Well, what else could we be doing that's sort of different that would get us to the same or get us to a better place is the way to put it. Thank you. Um, that was great advice, uh, you know, and guidance. So um, I have asked you a lot of questions, Dr. Valentine. This has been a fascinating discussion, but what have I, I asked this to all our episode guests. So what have I missed asking you that you would like to share with us? Um, I, I don't think we've really missed anything. I, um, I have a lot of admiration for cancer patients and cancer survivors. Uh, it's a really tough group. And I mean, I mean, I mean, tough in a resilient, right. I mean, this tough in a resilient, good way, but, but, you know, this is, this is definitely hard work. Uh, everybody who's on this cast knows that so you know i i don't think we've we've missed anything i'll just emphasize again because i'm very biased behavioral care deserves to be part of comprehensive care it just does um it's as worthy of attention and it's as important to quality of life as any any physical disease flat out Exactly. And the thing is, you know, I'm so with you on that. And I always feel that unless we understand that there is a true connection between the mind and the body, we are not going to give as much attention to mental health. But it is so, so, so important that we do that because there is one feeds the other. I don't see, you know, overall health taking the mental part of it away because it just doesn't happen like that you have to. exactly it, 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 it's just it's just it's not realistic but part of this some aspects of mental health care are not as far along for instance as some aspects of oncology true you know uh we're we in our field are further are, are far are behind we're making progress but, you know, sometimes, and both as less as scientists, but certainly members, all of us as members of the public, we sometimes fear and we don't stress the importance of things that we don't understand. Uh, it's, it's, it's nebulous, therefore it's soft or it's, or we don't know what to do about it. So we don't do anything. Also, the fact you talked about the, you know, the stigma part of it, too. I'm just going to go back to that for a second, because I also feel that a large part of it is also because we don't want to talk about, you know, something like this. when it's, we are speaking. It's, there's still shame associated with it. Um, it is legitimately true. I've had patients who have done this and who have been worried about disclosing to their clinicians that they're having trouble for fear that they will be taken off a trial. Right, exactly. Okay. Um, or that somehow they'll be, uh, that, that that's usually not going to be the case. Uh, there are certain settings where it might be, okay, but uh, that's usually not going to be the case. And that 
problem, that emotional problem is still there and it still needs, you know, it still needs attention. Exactly. So um, stigma, I mean, it's embarrassing. It's like, we're not strong enough. Our faith is not strong enough. We don't, our, you know, our spine needs some, some cement in it because it's weak. It's, this is all, you know, why do we judge things like this when we wouldn't judge a person's character because, or their, or any of their, these things because they developed ovarian cancer itself. We wouldn't think of them that way. So, you know, why do we do this with this, with these diseases that we know in a lot of ways have biological bases, um, but are not exclusive. It's as you say, we are, we are, we are a mix. We are a product of chemistry. We are, we are a mix. We are products of our, our, our upbringing. We are products of our experience. Uh, and all of these things go into being a whole person. And it's, now this is being said by a psychiatrist. Like, like I said, I'm really biased here, but uh, it's part of my job to help fight the stigma. No, thank you. And we appreciate you very much for that. So great conversation, Dr. Valentine. Just in closing, um, I would ask you, what would be your parting message to our overcomers that are listening to us today? You're a really strong group. You may be stronger than you think. Like I say, oh, you know, I steal from everybody, but what does the Marine Corps say, among other things? Improvise, adapt, overcome. That's what you do. You you may be stronger than you think you are. And I'm, I'm not even sure about stronger. You may have skills that may be a bit, because it's not about people who have problems are not weak. So I use the wrong word, but you've got, maybe you've got skills. In fact, I know you've got skills. You may not know you've got the skills, but I know you've got them or you wouldn't be an overcomer. That's wonderful. Such a such a fantastic parting message. Uh, this is absolutely perfect. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Valentine. This was a fabulous, fabulous conversation. I mean, this is so fascinating. I could go on for the next five hours talking to you about this, but thank you for sharing your time with us today. And overcomers, I hope this was beneficial for you. We learned so much, such new things from Dr. Valentine today. So please, please um, share this video far and wide with anyone that may benefit from all these you know great insights and the pearls of wisdom that dr uh, valentine shared with us and um you know uh, it's it's just our honor and our privilege to have uh, these speakers come and talk to us about things that are so important um, to all of us uh, in our lives so take care of your mental health and it's very important as dr valentine would say and we will be back with the next episode of connect over coffee very soon until then you keep inspiring and keep overcoming thank you and bye Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support.